Chapter Twenty Eight of Julia Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Julia Reed by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Eight. In which he led us in paths that we did not know. Oh, I think I was a Christian, a miserable, sick, weak one, not worth the name. Yet I know I did have a feeling of trust in my Saviour, something that I would not have yielded for anything that I had in the world. This was what Mrs. Tyndall said in answer to a remark made by Dr. Douglas, as we all sat together one evening about two weeks after Frank's marriage. We had been taking a drive together in the large carriage, Abby and Mr. Sales, Dr. Douglas, Mr. and Mrs. Tyndall, and myself, and now Mrs. Tyndall was going farther in the little carriage with her husband, and while she waited for him she talked with Dr. Mulford, who had come in to see Dr. Douglas. But, continued Mrs. Tyndall, it was, after all, very unlike the feeling that I have now. I mean to live such a different life. You can't think how many things there are for me to undo. I am so thankful that I have health and leisure. So few people have both. There is no reason why I should not employ all my time in going about at work. I think there is a great deal to do. There is indeed, Dr. Mulford answered earnestly. People with health and leisure and consecration are very rare and very greatly needed. Why, Mrs. Tyndall, if you will put yourself subject to my disposal, I can keep you very busy every moment of the time. I will, she said eagerly. That is just what I want, someone to direct my energy, for I really have a great deal. It has to be used in some way, but I don't trust my own way of doing things as much as I did. Will you tell us, questioned Dr. Douglas, what was the secret power that wrought upon you this change of which you speak? made you look at the Christian life and Christian work in such a different light? Mrs. Tyndall turned suddenly toward my cousin Abby, and gave her a look of loving gratitude, as she said, It was watching another life, so totally different from my own, and yet professing to be governed by the same springs of action. I have noticed it, and watched her, and wondered over her manner of living from my first acquaintance. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump, Dr. Mulford quoted, musingly, as if thinking aloud. Then he laid his hand on Abby's shoulder, and said tenderly, God has greatly honored you, my child. I, said bewildered and wondering Abby, why, I haven't done anything. Only just lived, Dr. Douglas said significantly, and Dr. Mulford added, It is a great thing for a Christian to live. At this point Mrs. Tyndall left us, looking back to say brightly, Remember, Dr. Mulford, I am ready for work and bubbling over with life and energy. I do hope you can give me a right channel to work in at last. We looked after them as they rode away, remarking upon how bright and graceful and full of healthful life she was. Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Mr. Sales said gravely. It seems he can. Whoever saw a more remarkable change than there is in that woman? She always had energy, plenty of it, Dr. Douglas said. It is as she said. She was unceasingly at work. The trouble is that Satan pushed himself in as her chief aide sometimes. She was born to be a leader, though, I think. Dr. Mulford, I fancy you will find her very useful. I expect to, the doctor said heartily. I can give her legitimate channels in which to work off her energy. I am glad she is just the woman she is, well and strong, and wealthy and willing. It wasn't ten minutes after that, no, it could hardly have been five, when a furious ring at the doorbell startled us all. That must be a summons for you, doctor, said Mr. Sales. No one else would be wanted in such desperate haste. And then listening, we heard the quick, panting voice. 
I want Dr. Douglas. Is he here? Yes, answered the doctor, going quickly forward. What is wanted, my boy? They want you right away, down to the corner, sir. There's been an accident. Mr. Tyndall's horse got frightened at the band, and Mrs. Tyndall she's thrown and hurt bad. Some thinks she is dead. Before this sentence was concluded, Dr. Douglas had brushed past him and was halfway to the corner. Consternation prevailed in the house. Abby still had her wits and rang bells and gave orders for Mrs. Tyndall's bed to be thrown open and hot water to be in readiness and attended to half a dozen other thoughtful and wise arrangements, while Mr. Sales and I still stood gazing solemnly at each other and saying, How very strange! How could it have happened? I thought that horse wasn't afraid of the band. Do you suppose she is much hurt? And several other of those witless and unanswerable remarks that useless people make to themselves and each other at such times. Dr. Mulford had at once followed Dr. Douglas. Directly there came a trampling of feet and subdued voices. Then Dr. Douglas's voice issuing orders right and left. Stand aside there. Sales, come and help me here. No, in answer to my terrified look. She has only fainted. We decided to bring her home while she was unconscious. Abby followed them up the stairs. I stayed below, looking after the curious or sympathetic people who immediately began to come on voyages of discovery or with offers of assistance. Mr. Sales came down presently. She will do everything, he said, speaking of Abby, with a curious mixture of pride and annoyance. She is hurrying around there as if she had the strength of a Samson. Is she much hurt? I asked, my thoughts still on Mrs. Tyndall. No, I guess not. She has revived now and spoken to Abby. Douglas has sent for Dr. Vincent to consult, but that is more for the sake of pacifying Tyndall, I guess, than because he needs him. But two hours passed before we knew more. Dr. Vincent came and went up to the room, and Dr. Mulford came down and went out. Then presently Mr. Sales was called for to go to Dr. Vincent's office for a certain case. I, meantime, was kept very busy below. People seemed determined to wring from me information that I did not possess, and the servants hung around with scared faces. At last Dr. Vincent went away. Dr. Douglas came downstairs with him, and they stood in the hall talking in low tones. I waited until the door closed on Dr. Vincent, then I went out. Dr. Douglas turned to me with a sad smile. Poor child, he said, how white it is. Are you very much frightened? How we plan, Julia. Here we were talking about her energy and health and strength, and what a work she would do, arranging to give her enough employment for her eager healthy life, and here, all the time, God had other plans that ran right athwart ours. Is she going to die? I asked in an odd and frightened whisper. No, not that, he said sadly. She may live as long, longer than you or I, but she will never lift herself from that bed again. Are you sure? I asked him, immeasurably more shocked than I would have been had he told me that God was going to take her right away to himself. Most hopelessly sure, he answered. Both hip and spine are injured. He had to go back upstairs. I sat down on the lowest step of the long flight of winding stairs, and tried in a stunned way to take in the meaning of his words. Never lift herself from that bed again. Then she would never walk again. Was it possible that her graceful form would never flit down those stairs again? I looked around the large elegant hall, arranged with exquisite taste, and as well furnished as many parlors. Every article in sight and in memory bore the marks of her graceful, skillful fingers. Only a little, little while ago she had set that vase of lilies under the glass, 
and had arranged their delicate cups, stopping to do it ere she tied the ribbon of her hat, the hat that lay now all battered and mud-stained under the table. I went forward and picked it up, and tried to bend the torn, limp thing into something like its former grace and beauty. It was of no use, it would never be fit to wear again, and its wearer would never need it any more. And I sat down with the bright-ribboned, pitiful-looking hat, and shed bitter tears. Mr. Sales, talking with me about it all, the next day, standing before me with folded arms and sad face, said, It's hard, Julia, very hard, and the reason of it past finding out. I thought it would be so different. I wanted it to be. I wanted her to be able, as she said, to undo much of her work. I wanted people to see and realize, as we do, how changed she is. I wanted her to grow into having the influence over people religiously that she has had over them morally and fashionably all her life. And now here she lies, a living, suffering death. It is a hard death, too. No sympathy. People are shocked and sorry, but no one has any tears to shed. They can go right on without her. There is no one to cry out in bitterness of soul. I cannot get along without her help. Oh, my! I don't want to die like that. I feel it, you see. That is what my dying now would be. No one to care for me, no one to miss me because my life had led them nearer to Christ. But I won't die so. If God will give me a little more time, I will work for him. Dr. Mulford had come quietly into the room, and as Mr. Sales finished his excited sentence, the doctor laid a quiet hand on his shoulder and said low and gently, His ways are not our ways. That was all said and done and lived more than three years ago. I am twenty now. It is four years ago today that I first came to Newton. I came back to the place today after a long absence. It was but a little while after Mrs. Tyndall's accident that I went with Abby to her home to help her make preparations for the wedding. I remembered at the time that my sister Esther went there once for the same purpose. We talked about that time a little while we made preparations. They were married at church one morning, and went away together, Mr. Sales and she. They seemed very happy. I did not go back to Newton. I was tired in body and brain. Also, I was less wise and self-reliant than when I first went there, and so I yielded to Sadie and Dr. Van Anden's often repeated urgings, and went to New Haven to live. I have heard often from Newton during these intervening years, and have constantly meant to visit my friends here, but other plans and cares and duties have intervened. It was finally a telegram that brought me. It read thus, Mrs. Tyndall died last night. Funeral on Thursday. We'll meet the 10.50 train. Douglas. So at once I started, and today I reached here. Just four years ago today I came here a stranger, and she gave me kindly greeting. Today they led me to look at her white coffined face. My heart was very sad, and yet when I had taken one long look at the familiar face, lying there so white and still, I turned to Dr. Douglas and smiled. He seemed to understand my meaning. Isn't the seal of the Spirit there? he said. It is as if one had a glimpse of heaven where she has entered in. Mrs. Alec Tyndall was there beside us. She had been the real mistress of that home during these three years, for the nominal one never left the room where they had carried her that night, until they brought her down to-day in her coffin. Frank bent over the coffin with fast-dropping tears. Yes, she said, she has entered in. But, oh, doctor, how can we live without her? Does she look natural, Julia? Mr. Sales asked me, and I answered quickly. No, not at all. She looks angelic. Oh, Julia! A murmur of voices greeted me. 
She looks what she has lived, said Mr. Sayles, tremulously. If ever an angelic spirit lived in a house of clay, we have had one here with us for more than two years. Perfect through suffering, Dr. Douglas said softly. Did she suffer very much? I asked him. He bowed his head. Fearfully, and with more than human patience. Dr. Mulford came in, greeted me silently, then went and looked long and earnestly at the face in the coffin. It is gained to her, he said at last, but what a fearful loss to us. The whole church is shaken. It may well be, Mr. Sayles said. What other ten members of our church can begin to do her work? I had heard much of this in letters, but I had not come to realize so as to forget the contrast. Those who had been with her constantly seemed to have forgotten all about any other life that she had lived than that of these last years. I did not refer to the old life, only I said to Mr. Sayles when we were alone together for a moment, Don't you remember how, past finding out, the reason of this living death was to you the day after the accident? And he, smiling sadly, answered, And don't you remember Dr. Mulford quoted to us, God's ways are not as our ways. Truly they are not, Julia. It has been the most wonderful life. There is not a scholar in our Sunday school, not a child in our streets, but she has managed somehow to reach. Mr. Sayles is very much changed, very much improved. He is more decided and earnest. But looking at him I realized more fully than I had before how we had probably all changed. I had certainly. I scanned him with a sort of puzzled wonder, and tried to decide how it was possible that I could once have fancied that I cared for him. Could I be the same person who had so tremblingly awaited my destiny on the night which it was expected and did not come? Suppose it had. Suppose I had, but I actually turned away from him with a little shiver. He was nice, I realized that, and he was good. I liked him, I thoroughly respected him, but as for anything more than that. Oh, girls, dear girls, we do not see at twenty as we did at sixteen. An hour ago I stood at the coffin's head, looking down on that spiritual face. Dr. Douglas had come in with me, and had been telling much about the beauty of her life and the blessedness of her death. At last he said, Once you thought she led you astray. Doubtless she did. It was one of her sorrows, but I comforted her. I told her I thought you had learned to listen first and always to the great leader's voice, and be led first by him. Is it not so? I answered humbly, but decidedly. I believe I have. We were silent for a little, and then he said, Julia, cannot we who have adopted the same leader, and are journeying toward the same home, walk together and help each other? The sweet and solemn moonlight stole across the sweet dead face, and seemed to make it smile upon us, and I with one hand resting on that coffin, and the other laid in his, felt that my joy had come to me at an hour when I sought it not. And together we will listen henceforth to the voice of our great captain, and humbly follow where he leads. End of chapter 28 End of Julia Reed by Pansy Recording by Tricia G.